So about 10 days ago, we took the train in New York. I never had taken the train in New York. I was wondering what that experience was going to be like, and it was wonderful. You just sit there, and you can read, and you can take a nap. You can go to the dining car. That was so cool. Go to the dining car and get something, and, and just before you know it, you're in Penn Station, and you're right there in the middle of all the action. You're right there in downtown New York City. And so we went that first night to see a show called The The Great Comet. I wanted to see this show. Gail and I wanted to see it because Josh Groban was in it. And he has a great voice, an amazing voice, and it was really amazing. Uh, Are you ready to wake up? Sort of like the theme of the show. It's set in the the 19th century. And so one of the cool things about that show is a lot of the audience, I'd say 20, 30% of the audience, gets to sit actually on stage. There's this massive stage, and you sit in all these different sections, and we didn't get tickets on the stage, but I'd like to see it again. I'd like to have one of those seats because you're right in the middle of all the action of the show. So at intermission, I go downstairs to walk around a little bit, stretch my legs, and all of a sudden, I am standing right next to him. I'm standing right next to him. I can't even believe it. This is somebody that, that I really like. This is somebody that I kind of resonate with, his, his style of humor. Uh, this is somebody that, that everybody sort of knows. And so I took this picture of him. There he is. There he is. I was, I was right there. I was, I was that close. Anybody want to guess who, he, who it is? Anybody want to guess who, who that looks like? Any guesses? Guesses? Somebody says Ben Stiller. You are absolutely right. I was right next to Ben Stiller. And the reason, the reason that I had that other shot, AJ, go back to the other shot. The reason I had that shot is because I was stalking him. <laughs> so, so he makes a move, I make a move. You know, he turns left, I turn left. I'm like, I'm like right behind him. Uh, like, a, like a good boy scout on the trail of some little squirrel or something. He's like, I'm, I'm right there. Because I'm waiting for that moment. I'm waiting for that moment when he's going to turn around and I'm going to see him face to face. And the moment came and he turned and I saw him face to face and there he was in all of his Ben Stiller glory. There he was and his eyes locked on my eyes and my eyes locked on his and I reached out and we shook hands. It was like electrifying. It's like I could feel the energy. I can feel it. And then I realized this is so cool because he and I are so much alike because he prays. He prays and I pray. (laughs) And he was in a movie once that was all about bringing faith and life together, keeping the faith. I thought, we're like one. This is a great relationship that we're having here. This is a great new friendship. This is the best friendship of my life. This is the best relationship of my life. Do you know why? Because there are no expectations because he doesn't really know me, and I don't really know him. And we have nothing to talk about, really. We have nothing to resolve. No conflicts, no problems, no tensions. Just me and Ben and Ben and me. It's a fabulous relationship. And if all of our lives were relationships like that, it would be easy, wouldn't it? But our lives are not relationships. They're not full of relationships like that. Our lives are full of of tensions and misunderstandings and things we're trying to figure out and things we're trying to sort out and different layers of things that we're trying to, they're trying to peel back. And it's, it's so much a story for us. Just like that song. We really want something more. It's messy, but we're kind, and, and we're, we're, we're feeling lost some of the time. We'd like to have some times when we could just start all over, and that's what life is. And the Bible 
tell stories like that. And I'd like to tell you some of those stories. I'd like to, to teach you some biblical principles this morning about relationships. And I'd like to talk to you about a specific problem that all of us have in relationships, the Bermuda Triangle. But let's begin. Let's begin in 1 Kings 21, reading from the message, because it kind of paints a picture and tells it like an old, old story, which it really is. It's almost like you hear the words, once upon a time. Naboth the Jezreelite owned a vineyard in Jezreel that bordered the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. So this, this, this gentleman, Naboth, has a vineyard and it goes right up to the palace. One day, Ahab spoke to Naboth saying, so the king speaks to him and he says, give me your vineyard so I can use it as a kitchen garden. It's right next to my house, like my house, the palace. It's right next to my house, so convenient. In exchange, I'll give you a far better vineyard or if you'd prefer, I'll pay you money for it. it. This sounds like a sweet deal, doesn't it? It's already right next to the palace. I'm going to give you money for it. I'm not just going to take it and send you packing, or I'll give you another vineyard. It sounds like a sweet deal, and it's the king. But Naboth, Naboth told Ahab, not on your life. I'd never sell the family farm to you. This is where I look at this and I say, this guy just doesn't have emotional intelligence. You know what I'm saying? He's not reading between the lines. This is the king. It's a sweet deal. He's going to get another vineyard, another farm. He's going to, or he's going to get cash. It's going to be a cash deal. And he goes, I'll never sell the family farm to you. Ahab went home in a black mood, sulking over Naboth the Jezreelite's words. I'll never turn over my family inheritance to you. He went to bed, stuffed his face in the pillow, and refused to eat. This is the king. He's the king. He's in control of the kingdom. And he's acting like a little kid. He goes to his room. He lays down on his bed. He's pouting. He's not going to eat. So Jezebel, his wife, came to him. She said, what's going on? What's going on? Why are you so out of sorts and refusing to eat? Now, what you have to know about, about Jezebel is that she makes General Patton look like a nice guy. Okay? So, so this woman is trouble from the get-go. Jezebel says, what's going on? Why are you so out of sorts and refusing to eat? He told her, because I spoke to Naboth the Jezreelite, I said, give me your vineyard, I'll pay you for it. If you'd rather, I'll give you another vineyard in exchange. And he said, I'll never give you my vineyard a little kid. Jezebel said, is this any way for a king of Israel to act? Aren't you the boss? Aren't you supposed to be on the undercover boss show next week? Doesn't say that. Just made that part up. Aren't you the boss? Aren't you the boss? On your feet. Eat. Cheer up. I'll take care of this. I'll get the vineyard of this Naboth the Jezreelite for you. So she has this little scheme, okay, this little scheme. She wrote letters over Ahab's signature, stamped them with his official seal, and sent them to the elders in Naboth City and to the civic leaders. She wrote, call for a fast day and put Naboth at the head table. Then seat a couple of stool pigeons across from him who in front of everybody will say, 
you, you blaspheme God and the king. Then they'll throw him out and stone him to death. And they did. The men of the city, the elders and civic leaders followed Jezebel's instructions that she wrote in the letter sent to them. They called for a fast day and seated Naboth at the head table. So Naboth right now is very unsuspecting. He feels like he's being honored. He feels like this is really going to be a great day. Then they brought in two stool pigeons. Now in the Hebrew it doesn't say stool pigeons. It says more like nefarious guys, but this is the message and he plays with words like that. Then they brought in two stool pigeons and seated them opposite Naboth in front of everybody. The two degenerates accused him. He blasphemed God and the king. The company threw him out in the street, stoned him mercilessly, and he died. When Jezebel got word that Naboth had been stoned to death, she told Ahab, Go for it, Ahab. Take the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite for your own. The vineyard he refused to sell you. Naboth is no more. Naboth is dead. Happy Valentine's Day. <laughs> what in the world? The, the minute Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, he set out for the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite and claimed it for his own. But listen, then God stepped in and spoke to Elijah. Let's hold on those words right there. Then God stepped in. See, God doesn't go for this relational debauchery kind of stuff. God doesn't go for all these crazy things that people do to each other. At, at some point, God is going to step in. At some point, God's going to step in to our lives when relational integrity is at stake. So if you look at this story, what do you see? You see immaturity. You see triangulation. You got Ahab the king, you got Jezebel, you've got Naboth, you've got three things going on here. you got manipulation. You have accusation. You have destruction. Then God steps in because relational brokenness must be put right. God wants right relationships. God's just not looking for us to be theological. God's looking for us to be in right relationship with each other. Here are my presuppositions. I first gave these to you in 2006. God loves you too much to let you get stuck in mediocre relationships. All relationships are works in progress. All relationships face internal and external challenges to their integrity. The best relationships are works of art. The best relationships are when God is at work helping you to grow, helping you hear the truth, helping you change when he's shaping you by the power of his spirit. If you are not changing and growing, you're not living. Let me give you two words to put on the fridge or keep in your back pocket or purse. Here are the two words. Content, process content process. Content is, is all the, the stuff that you have to know. It's, it's knowing. But there's process. There has to be process for content to, to come to, to fruition, for it to bloom into all its, its relational beauty. 
There is content. There are all kinds of biblical principles, biblical exhortations, biblical admonitions, parables, all kinds of things for us to, to learn from. But if we don't live it out, then we miss the whole point of it. If we're not really, really acting out from the inside, what God is putting in us from the outside, if we're not living that out, then we're missing everything that God wants for us. This is why relational integrity is so important. The, the idea of content is shown in the Old Testament when, when they had all the content of everything they were supposed to do and, and, and live for in terms of what God gave them. And there are these places where, where they, f- they find the book of the law. It was, it was on a shelf somewhere. It was, was lost somewhere. And they, they had stopped living according to God's parameters for life. They were, they were losing track of the content. And they were brought back into a process of living it out. When Jesus was talking to the Pharisees and the Sadducees, he was railing against them saying, you have the content, but you have missed the process. I've got content. I've got a lot of content. You've got content. But the process is where the action is. It's really learning to live it out, learning to apply it day to day, moment by moment in our lives. Let me show you how that works in Scripture. Zechariah chapter 8, verses 16 and 17, the message. And now here's what I want you to do. God is speaking. And now here's what I want you to do. Tell the truth, the whole truth when you speak. Do the right thing by one another. That's the process. Both personally and in your courts. Don't cook up plans to take unfair advantage of others. Don't do or say what isn't so. I hate all that stuff. Keep your lives simple and honest. Okay, so that's, that's how the message puts it, a paraphrase. Let me give you a word-by-word word translation. Zechariah 8, 16 and 17, the New American Standard Bible. These are the things which you should do. Speak the truth to one another. Judge with truth and judgment for peace in your gates. In other words, where you live, assess things with truth and judgment for peace, wherever you live, wherever you are. And also let none of your let none of you devise evil in your heart against another. And do not love perjury. For all these are what I hate, declares the Lord. Process process is so important. Last week, when Jason Barnes taught us about practicing perfect perspective, he was in Philippians chapter 4, verses 4 through 9. And he was talking about rejoicing in the Lord, praying and keeping our minds steady by thinking about good things. And all that was right on target. It was just a great message. If you just go back to verses 1, 2, and 3, however, you're going to see something very Interesting. Philippians 4, 1 through 3, the message. My dear, dear friends, I love you so much. I do want the very best for you. You make me feel such joy. Fill me with such pride. Don't waver. Stay on track. Steady in God. So, so Paul says, keep going. Keep, keep living out this, this process. Then he says, I urge Yodia and Syntyche to iron out their differences and make up. God doesn't want his children holding grudges. They got the content, but they're stuck in the process. I urge these two women to iron out their differences and make up. God doesn't want his children holding grudges. 
And then he says, oh, yes, and oh, yes. Sisgus, since you're right there to help them work things out, do your best with them. Hey, Sis, since you're there and you know about the situation, how about you kind of move in to that situation and, and help them to figure it out. Get them to talk to each other. Be a part of building community right where you are. That's the process. It's right here in the scripture. Whether it's the flake gate or any other gate, it seems we get sideways with each other pretty quick. Today we're going to look at one of the top ways that we all get sideways with each other. Whether it's in a company, whether it's in a family, whether it's in a marriage with a husband and wife, whether it's on a, a team, and you see this sometimes when you're, when you're reading a sports page that people are sideways with each other about this. Somebody says this, somebody says that. This is from Henry Cloud's book, The Power of the Other, and it's called The Bermuda Triangle. This is a great book. Do not think that this book is an easy read. You're not going to start it on Monday, finish it on Friday, and then go, oh, that was, that was good. I got something. This is going to be a slow read. It's going to be taking notes. It's going to be talking about it with, with somebody else. The power of the other, the startling effect other people have on you from the boardroom to the bedroom and beyond, and what to do about it. Really great book, really tough. It's a tough truth-telling kind of a book. But I really wanted to bring to you this, this Bermuda Triangle thing because it's so important. This week and next week are kind of like tied together. This is really the relational stuff where it can make a huge difference in our lives. I've pointed out to you the scriptural part, the background. Let me get into the, the practical part here. Let's set this up quick and simple. I'm A and you're B and somebody else is C. I'm upset with you we're not on the same page. Uh, I don't like something you said. I don't like something you did. Uh, you, I said something. You made a funny face. I don't, I don't know what that's all about. Um, I'm A. You're B. I take my hurt. I take my frustration. I take what I really need to get off my chest, and I take it to C. I really like C. C likes me. And I know they will listen to me, and they'll probably agree with me, and then we will both be against you. Henry Cloud puts it this way. I gripe about you, how mean, wrong, abusive, or attacking you were to do what you did or, or say what you said. I'm not talking to the rescuer uh, or the C. I'm not talking to C for legitimate feedback about our conflict and for help resolving it. That would be good motivation, but instead, I'm talking to give validation that I'm right and you're wrong. It makes me feel better. It helps me avoid talking to you. I'm not looking for truth or growth in my conversation with C. I'm looking to feel good. And there's two key words there. Truth and growth. Relational integrity is about truth and growth. It's always about truth and growth. And, and that can be hard. Feedback can be hard. Candor can be hard. Speaking the truth in, in love can be hard. But that's where the action is for relational integrity and growth. Otherwise, you get mired in relational mediocrity all of your days. I'm not looking for truth or growth in my conversation with C. 
I'm looking to feel good. Have you ever seen this on a leadership team? Have you ever seen this in a marriage? Have you ever seen this on a sports team? Have you ever seen this in government? Cloud writes, divisiveness is one of the most destructive forces in teams, companies, families, marriages, friendships, and any other relational systems. It just brings everybody down. Let's take a look at it in Scripture. Proverbs chapter 6, New International Version. There are six things the Lord hates, seven that are detestable to him. In other words, hold on, God really doesn't like this stuff. Haughty eyes, in other words, pride, the prideful look, prideful looking out at the world. A lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked schemes, feet that are quick to rush into evil, a false witness who pours out lies. And then, there it is, and a person who stirs up conflict in the community. I'm A, you're B. I don't like what you said. I don't like what you did to me. I'm not sure I even like you anymore. I'm going to go with C and talk about it so that I can feel better, so that I can be right, and we can marginalize you. And, and sort of, you can go into the Bermuda Triangle and get lost now, because I'm going to do this over here. And a person who stirs up conflict in the community, in the message he puts it, and a troublemaker in the family. I love the King James. And he that soweth discord among brethren. And he that soweth discord among brethren. You get that picture. Uh, remember when Jesus said, the sower went out to sow his seed and some fell here? You get this picture of somebody who's, who's sowing seeds of discord. You know, lots of A talking to C. Sowing a seed, let that grow up. It's going to grow up good, isn't it? And all of a sudden you get a lot of little things growing up that, that are kind of not good and they're maybe poisonous plants, and, but you sowed them out there. And he that soweth discord among brethren. There's some things that God really doesn't like. That's why my relationship with Ben Stiller is so cool. I don't have to worry about any of this stuff. It's just me and Ben. It's like, Ben, I like Ben. Ben likes me. We got electricity in our handshake. We got something going on. It's, a, it's an easy relationship because we don't really know each other. See? But when you know each other, you got to deal with the real stuff. We have to deal with working things out and figuring things out and talking about the truth and talking about how do I, how do I grow through this? How does this make us better? How, does, how do we let God work through this? See, people disappear in Bermuda Triangles, but God's not about people disappearing. God's about people being in right relationship with each other. So let me give you a strategy. You can call this triangle flight plans or whatever you want to call it, but it's a strategy for, for how not to get lost in a Bermuda Triangle in your life, not, not to let anybody else get lost in that. It gets down to the process. You know the content this gets us to the 
the process. Number one, name the triangles where you are. Name the triangles that you are living right now because somewhere in your life, you're either living one right now or you lived one last week or last year or you're going to live one next week or next month because they're out there. Name the triangles or the potential triangles where you are and then name what is okay. It's important to know what is okay. It's okay to get clarity and helpful counsel from someone. It's really okay. It's really okay to go to somebody who's wise and who's even keeled and say, you know, somebody said this and it really kind of rankled me and, and, and before I, I, I say something I shouldn't say or do something I shouldn't, shouldn't do, can you help me to get perspective on it? Uh, that's okay. Getting perspective and wisdom is always okay. It's okay to meet after a meeting to see if someone heard what you heard, what you felt. So you're in a meeting, somebody says something, and you're like, oh, that kind of got me sideways. And so you go, I, I think I heard this. Is that what, what you heard? No, I really didn't hear that. Oh, okay, maybe it was just me. Or I think I heard this or kind of felt this. Yeah, I kind of felt that too. So, so maybe, we should, maybe we should go and, and, and talk about that. The common denominator is always grace. Max Licato put it this way. The meaning of life, the wasted years of life, the poor choices of life. God answers the mess of life with one word, grace. So there's something that's okay, and grace covers a lot of that stuff. But what is not okay are Bermuda Triangles where people end up lost, emotionally incarcerated, or just disappear from the community radar altogether. They're just, they're just gone. You know, we don't really talk to them anymore, or the talk always remains kind of superficial. They're just not included anymore. But, but we sing some great songs. We have some great Bible studies. We listen to John Ortberg or Beth Moore, and we go, well, that's some really great stuff. But there's no room for Bermuda Triangles in a Christian community. God doesn't want that. It's very clear that he doesn't want that. Number two, get agreement not to talk about someone to somebody else unless you're willing to say the same thing to B. In other words, no A, C things are allowed here unless it's part of the movement toward B. So, you know, B said something, kind of got me sideways. I come to you and I say, you know, can you help me figure this out with B? Uh, if, can you just help me understand it? And then I'll go to B and I'll, I'll, I'll figure it out. And we'll, we'll take care of it. Get agreement wherever you live, in your home, in your company, in the boardroom, in the church, to not talk to somebody about someone else unless you're willing to say the same thing to the person who bugged you. Number three, decline to join AC conversations. You see it coming? 
here it comes down the pike. They're going to start talking about Susie. They're going to start talking about John. And you come, all of a sudden you get the big picture. You go, whoa, whoa, whoa. Have you talked to Susie? Have you talked to John? I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll go with you to support you with Susie. I'll go with you to just support you with, with John. Because that's the right thing to do with this. Let's not put Susie and John in a Bermuda Triangle and all of a sudden they just disappear from, from our community or from our family or from our company. Number four, learn to receive feedback well. Grow in listening and being long in the nose. Long in the nose, yeah, long in the nose. To understand long in the nose, you have to go to Joel 2.14 and Jonah 4.2 where it says, God is slow to anger. If you go to the, to the Hebrew, it doesn't say God is slow to anger. It actually says, God is long in the nose, which is why they don't translate it that way in English, because it doesn't make sense. But that's what it says. God is long in the nose, because it made sense to those people in that time, because it, it was an idiom. It was an expression. To be long in the nose means it just takes you a long time to feel the heat in your face that might erupt into anger, that might make you say something you regret or do something that you really don't want to do. So if God is slow to anger, if God is slow in the nose, he gives you a lot of time to figure it out, he gives you a lot of grace, then, then maybe you should be long in the nose too. Learn to receive feedback. Well, Ken Blanchard, the, the famous author of The One-Minute Manager uh, and many other books since then, once said, feedback is the breakfast of champions. In other words, if you're going to be a leader or you're going to be a good husband, father, friend, you know, corporate officer, person who's coaching other people, you have to take feedback. You have to have, have people speak into your life for good. And some of those things that they say to you, might be hard to listen to, and that's okay, because we all need that in our lives. We can't be delusional, thinking that we're perfect all the time. We're messy, but we're kind, yeah. But we're messy too, and we need to hear about some of that messy stuff. Learn to receive feedback well. Be long in the nose, and then finally, be wise. Be wise. See the bigger picture. Always see the bigger picture. I had a chance to see the bigger picture on Friday. I never did this before. What I did on Friday, all day Friday, I never did before in my entire life. I sat under the teaching of a seminary professor from 9.30 in the morning to 4.30 in the afternoon, and we went through the 12 minor prophets in the Old Testament, 12, all of them. We just flew through it all. It was an amazing amount of material. It was a lot of content. But we had to get to the process too. And, and we got to the process when the professor said, here's what the prophets are really saying. They're saying, give us reality. They're saying, give us space to grieve. And they're saying, give us hope. In other words, give us reality means we've got to see things for what they really are, not for what 
we hope they are or think maybe sort of kind of they are, but this is what it is. This is the reality of the relationship. This is the reality of where we are on this track to the future in our company, in our church, in our family. What is reality? Here's reality, folks. Space to grieve is so we have a chance to go, man, I am so sorry. I am so sorry I did that. I said that. I'm so sorry I should have known better. I, I knew the content. I didn't live out the process. And, and, and my contribution was, was part of what was, was destructive and not good. We grieve. But then there's hope. There's hope for what it can be. There's hope for what our family can be, our marriage can be, our church can be, our business can be, our team can come together and be. And so these, these prophets, they tell us reality, they give us space to grieve, and then they give us a picture of hope. The bigger picture is always reality. The bigger picture is always grieving. And the bigger picture, picture is always hope. And then Brennan Breed, this seminary professor, from Columbia Theological Seminary said this, all of us, all of us could deal with some truth-telling. All of us could deal with some truth-telling. See, people disappear in Bermuda Triangles, and nobody should disappear. So we have to name the triangles where we are, understand what's okay, and understand that people shouldn't be emotionally incarcerated by our behavior or our reactions. We have to not talk about someone unless we're willing to move toward that other person that we're, we're seeking wisdom about. We have to decline to join those kind of conversations that would, would put somebody in a Bermuda Triangle. We have to say, have you really talked to that person yet? I'll go with you. We have to receive feedback well and learn how to be long in the nose. We have to see the bigger picture. In the song that we heard this morning, or those words, if I'm honest, I know I would give it all back for a chance to start over and rewrite an ending or two. To start over and rewrite an ending or two. And we could do that. That's what God does in our lives. He does it by allowing us to live out of moments of grace. He allows us to, to avoid Bermuda Triangles where people get lost. And he says, come to me and let's do this right. Let's speak the truth in love. Let's build real Christian community and not something that's superficial, that crumbles under the weight of, of the day's challenges. All of us could deal with some truth-telling. And now here's what I want you to do. Tell the truth, the whole truth, when you speak, do the right thing by one another, both personally and in your courts. Don't cook up plans to take unfair advantage of others. Don't do or say what isn't so. I hate all that stuff. Keep your lives simple and honest. And then a letter came, and it was written to me. Dear Michael, Time for another letter to you. Your friends can listen in if you want them to. I know they will and hope they learn something too. 
you are finally understanding the rules of reality, the rules of something more. You start out thinking, it's all about getting, but the real rule is about giving as much away as you can. You start out thinking everyone has to understand who you are, your motives and your dreams, but the real rule is about seeing who's hurting and who needs you to be there for them in the now. You start out thinking that one day you'll arrive at a place where your life will be cushy and protected from harm, but the real rule is that the world will crush you unless you are securely attached to me. You start out thinking love is a commodity you negotiate for over long periods of time, hoping you'll stash enough away in your portfolio to ward off future relational trauma. But my rule is love without expectation, love without an attitude of entitlement, love without analysis of the response, love seeing the value of the loved one as the fulfillment of love. You see, when people say they're a team, what they're saying is that no matter what happens, they will totally give themselves away in service to the other. They aren't saying, I'll do this until it gets hard, or I'll do this until I stop feeling like I want to do this. It transcends feelings. It wings past obligation. It eschews relational mediocrity. Community is where I ruthlessly train you for the sake of redemptive glory. It's where you finally learn the impact of grace, where your heart dries up and crumbles at the slightest heavenly glance. This is hard to hear, I know. But my dream for you must drive these words home. You can do all things because my love flows in your blood. By the power of my word, you will be healed. By embracing reality and grief and hope, you will be free. Yes, there is something more. God. Dear Heavenly Father, help us to, to not want to fall into the things that, that you don't want to see us fall into. And Father, help us to, to do the amazing work of process in our lives, to take the truth, to take the, the content of your word and the principles of your word and to, to breathe them into every moment of every day, to, to allow your holy hands to transform moments that, that could slip into a Bermuda Triangle and be lost forever. Allow those, those moments to be redeemed. Allow hopeful conversations to come and truthful conversations to come. Allow tears to flow if they need to flow. Allow embrace after embrace and allow us to know that you love us through everything. Father, we want something more. We ache for something more. And we know that something more is you. Father, take us, take us now. Take us into relational integrity. For we give our lives to you again. In Jesus' name.